This is a special God Pod which was recorded as part of our McDonald Lecture Series 2016. The McDonald Lecture Series is a series of lectures generously sponsored by the McDonald Agape Foundation. We hope you enjoy it. which he's just given on his new book, The Day the Revolution Began, placing the cross uh, in the context of the whole story of God in the scriptures, the Old Testament narrative of creation, Exodus, uh, old creation, new creation, all brought together, which is a fascinating um, uh, story to put that together. Uh, Just to begin with, um, Tom, just a quick question for me. I mean, it says you you mapped um, John's gospel and his account of uh, the, the story of Jesus onto the narrative of Old Testament creation, Exodus, uh, exile, and so on. Um, do you think that, that was that a conscious thing from John? Was it sort of did he sit down to write that, or was it something sort of instinctive because that was just so much part of his view of life and his understanding of the world that it almost in, in, in inevitably came out? Uh, and do you actually think St. Paul does something similar in the book of Hebrews and so on? And so there's a couple of questions lurking in there, but um, yeah. Uh, Easy, yes. The answers are yes, yes, and yes. Um, Anyone in the early Christian movement soaked in Israel scriptures who begins a book by saying, in the beginning, and then tells the story of light and all of that, is saying, we're tracking with Genesis. Anyone who talks about something tabernacling in our midst, the Greek word is eskenosen, which means pitched his tent in our midst and revealed his glory, is talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness and the divine glory and when you see how those two relate to one another in John's prologue they relate pretty much exactly as Genesis 1 and 2 and Exodus 40 relate with interesting bits in between about he came to his own and his own didn't receive him etc and then you say well does that prologue just fall off the front of the gospel or is it actually carefully integrated into the rest of the book? The answer is, yep, it's carefully integrated. This stuff has been mulled over. Now, it's perfectly possible if somebody loving Jesus as much as John did, soaked in Israel's scriptures as much as he was, if he you know, had an extra cup of coffee one night and had an extraordinary dream, maybe it might come out like that. And Maybe, maybe who more knows? than coffee. Hmm? Maybe more than coffee. Who knows? Um, I couldn't possibly comment. But um, I do think that John and Paul and Matthew, Mark and Luke and Hebrews and Revelation, I think that there is this sense that they know when they're telling the story of Jesus that this is where that huge, great, sprawling, floppy, uneven, difficult narrative finally lands. And they're telling the story of Jesus in such a way as to bring that out and in such a way as to say, so this is how God does what he said he would do and rescues his creation. And that's the point, is the new creation. Um, one of the things, I'm, I'm a doctrine teacher rather than a, um, a biblical scholar. So, what, so I start um, looking at the doctrine of the atonement, the theory of the atonement, from uh, Jesus fully God, fully human, not, not an Old Testament concept. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Uh, can I mean why does the Messiah, the one uh, uh, who is going to bring God's creation to fulfilment, why does he have to be God? 
Or is that a, a, a bit of platonising that doesn't fit in the story I, at all? I don't think it's platonising, but, I mean, one of the things I'm fascinated about in the Gospels, and Richard Hayes' new book, which I mentioned a couple of times, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, is absolutely brilliant on this. We were all taught that John gives you a divine Jesus, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, well, maybe, but we're not quite sure. If Richard is even half right, then Matthew, Mark, and Luke are every bit as much incarnational theologies as John. But I still want to say, and have said this to Richard, that I think incarnation is the key in which the music is set rather than the tune which is being played. In other words, the Gospels tell the story in full early Christian recognition that this is what it looked like when Israel's God came back. But the purpose of telling the story is not simply, guess what, Jesus is God. You know, we've been fooled into thinking that was the main question by the 18th century debates, which sort of, you know, rationalist debates, was Jesus really divine, did he really do miracles, etc. And we've responded with an apologetic, thinking that the Gospels were there to prove that Jesus is divine, and then we've done our job. And I want to say, of course the Gospels think that Jesus is the embodiment of Israel's God. But the purposes of Israel's God, what's he come actually to do, not just to show, yes, I'm God, but to launch God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. And the meaning of God's kingdom on earth as in heaven is the Psalm 2 vision, the Psalm 72 vision, the Psalm 89 vision, um, the Isaiah 11 vision. Again and again, it is the messianic reality of restoring God's whole... Think of Isaiah 11 with the wolf and the lamb lying down together and the little child leading them. This is what happens when the wise Messiah endowed with the Spirit is ruling at last. And the prophets are sort of, but what will it look like when he comes? And nobody knows, and then it happens. And then they read backwards into the Old Testament. Oh, my goodness, there it was. So, yes to fully divine, fully human, but that means what it means in the New Testament in the context of the retrieval of the kingdom prophecies, which, after all, is what the Gospels say they're all about. I, I see that, but I, I also think that, that what's happening in John um, is John retelling the, the Hebrew Scriptures story, because the Hebrew Scriptures don't envisage God becoming human, do they? Well, they do, they? do and they don't. Um, like so many things in the Hebrew Scriptures, the early Christians saw things, again, Richard Hayes' phrase, reading backwards, which nobody had seen before. I'll give you an example. Um, nobody, as far as we know, prior to Jesus, read Second Samuel 7.14, which is, I will raise up your seed after you, God promising to David. and he was Nobody read that as a prophecy of resurrection. But as soon as Jesus is raised from the dead, people said, wait a minute, there's that prophecy which in the Septuagint is Kai Anastasot or Spermus, I will resurrect, oh my goodness, this means he really is the son of David. So there's a lot of reading back and discerning things which then, with a high theology of scripture, they say, that was there all along. It's the road to Emmaus, foolish ones and slow of heart. Don't you realize this is what the prophets were saying all along? So there's that lovely rediscovery. Take John 10, the good shepherd. Who is the shepherd in Israel's scriptures? Is it God or is it the Messiah? In Psalm 23, it's definitely God. In Ezekiel 34, at one point, it's God, and another point, it's David. And we imagine somebody saying to Ezekiel, let's just get this straight here. Is, is the shepherd God? Or, and I think Ezekiel says, yes, he is, God and David. And I don't know how it works either. Or Isaiah 53, clearly about this suffering figure, 
the chapter begins, who would have thought that he was the arm of the Lord? We're taking the discussion on a bit. In this, James raised the question of the relationship between incarnation and, and cross and, and atonement. And I suppose there, there is a, there's an old schema, isn't there, that says that effectively, you know, Protestants have tended to lay the emphasis upon the sort of centre of gravity upon the cross and atonement. You know, Catholics perhaps have emphasised incarnation as the sort of saving moment, Orthodox resurrection. resurrection. And I suppose in, in your understanding of this, where does the... The, um, the emphasis lie because in some ways I can see you know thinking of the idea of the cross at the, as, at the moment at which the gods are overthrown and God's uh, son his image is restored I can, I can kind of see that slightly more in the resurrection and ascension uh, as the moment when um, you know if you like from the moment of defeat apparent defeat God then raises his son and places him at the right hand of the father as the ascended Christ and I suppose uh, and I'm wondering whether actually, um, you know, what's the particular significance of crucifixion in that and, uh, well, the death of Jesus as opposed to resurrection as ascension, which might have a greater claim to be the sort yeah. of central moment of, yeah. of victory. Yeah, I, I mean, of course we need them all. I mean, we need them in proper biblical balance, which is very difficult. It seems to be one of the ongoing tasks of theology is so to tell and retell the story that the different elements play their proper role in relation to one another. But there are interesting little telltale signs as to how you do this. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the Messiah is not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. In other words, if you start questioning resurrection, do you realize that that means the cross was not a victory, it was a defeat, and sins have still got their grip on you, and that grip hasn't, hasn't been broken? So it's as though a theology of the cross is what you realize must have happened theologically because you now have the resurrection, which enables you to look back. That's why I say my question in writing the book I wrote was not a whole theology of atonement for which we'd have needed masses more stuff. But the New Testament seems to say that by 6 p.m. on the first Good Friday, something had changed in the way the world was. That something is only revealed in resurrection, ascension, gift of the Spirit. But Paul and John particularly insist that it is already a reality. And I think First Peter in Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison, something has happened. An announcement can now be made even before resurrection. So... Of course, um, and each time somebody emphasizes one thing perhaps a bit over much, some other tradition comes along and says, no, 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 it isn't like that. And, and we, we all need to do that to one another. Um, I, mean, I guess my, my other question is, um, well, I, come, I mean, Jane comes to this as a doctrine teacher, uh, not a biblical scholar. I come to it as a historical theologian rather than a doctrine or a uh, biblical scholar. Um, and I suppose my, my question, I suppose, is about the, the, the cultural context of our of our understandings of atonement. And it's often struck me that some of the models of atonement that we've often had in the past have been very, you know, models that have spoken very powerfully in a particular context. You think of, actually, I think a lot of the reformers' um, understandings of atonement, actually, they got from Anselm in a sort of, mm. sort of um, you know, adapted format. But Anselm obviously has this feudal understanding where he's in a context of, you know, servants with a local lord in the manor just down the road, and he's there thinking about, you know, offences against the honour of the, the Lord and therefore sin is a sort of, you know, slight to the honour of God and, and a debt that needs to be paid and so on. Um, one could imagine penal substitution, some forms of it is fitting very well within a culture where sort of duty and obedience um, matters a great deal. I suppose my, my question I suppose to you is in it, what, what you've offered us today, fascinatingly I think, is a, 
is, if you like, a, um, something that, that focuses more on idolatry. Is that Absolutely. primary sin? Absolutely. And I'm wondering how much of that is a cultural thing for us at this particular moment. We're now in a part of Western culture where now many people do not believe in God. They worship other gods. And so that's sin that we're most conscious of. We're not so much, we're not conscious of kings down the road who we owe obedience yeah. to. We're not yeah. conscious of duty and obedience. But we are conscious of not following, you know, not obeying uh, and worshipping in the one true God, the God of the scriptures. And I suppose um, my question is, you know, to what, to what extent yeah, is yeah. your interpretation a cultural one that fits in this context, or is it something that is there for... That, I mean, that's people? fascinating, because, I mean, I can well see what you're saying, that um, privileging, as it were, idolatry uh, does actually fit very well, more obviously today than it has done in Western culture for, for some time, although actually idolatry is endemic. Um, curiously, that wasn't how I myself came to it, I came to it through, um, over the last several years, trying to understand um, Paul's critique of sin, for instance, where in Romans 1 he doesn't start off by saying God's wrath is revealed against all human sin. He talks about asabia and adikia, um, ungodliness and injustice. That is, if you worship that which is not God, your humanness will deconstruct and so will the humanness of the people who touched by your life and then from that I was kind of looking back in the Old Testament and thinking actually idolatry is at the heart of it all um, idolatry is the thing which then causes humanness to fracture um, ours and those of others and so sin matters but but it's a failure of worship and I think it's partly that um, for me it's been a long journey into understanding what goes on when I worship when we worship and you know, I've always been a, a worshipping Christian since I was tiny, um, but I only latterly, as it were, really reflected on how when we truly worship the one true God, we are saying it's you that I'm worshipping and not those other gods, and focusing on that, you know, the TDM, we praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord, all the earth worships thee. <laughs> that's, excuse me, that's, that's, that's big stuff. Um, and so... Uh, I suspect that there are many different cultural contexts into which that speaks, and yes, it does speak to ours. I, my, my effort, obviously, as a first-century person, is to try to understand, get inside the mind of the Johns and the Pauls of the first century and say, where were they coming from? And then that can be reapplied, but as we reapply it, as Anselm did, as Calvin did, as all sorts of people did, it seems to me you have to go back to the original model. This is part of what I think is meant by the authority of Scripture. Not that Scripture just stops us thinking, but that it says, you always come back here, please. Um, otherwise, you get off on different tangents. One of the um, really uh, constructive pastoral routes that the theory of the atonement has taken is, is our ability to say to people in the midst of suffering and bereavement and and uh, death, that God is present with us. Does that come out of your great biblical scheme? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is the extraordinary thing about all four Gospels, that they are telling the story of Jesus. They're telling the story of Jesus as the story of Israel reaching its climax, of evil coming to its height, etc. But they're also telling the story of Jesus as the story of this strange incognito God who does come precisely and touches the beer where the widow's son is and uh, weeps at Lazarus's grave and washes the disciples' feet, including Judas's feet. Um, there's that lovely hymn by 
to the reason I'm not sure um, a, a Maundy Thursday hymn which has the line we strain to glimpse your mercy seat and find you kneeling at our feet and, and that sense of the strange surprising loving gentle presence of God is it just keeps popping up in the different gospel narratives um, very disturbingly but then there is a straight move from there and I see this for instance in uh, Paul's letter to Philemon where Paul doesn't talk about atonement theology, but he's actually doing it because he stretches out one hand and says, Philemon, you and I are in this together. We're partners. And then stretches out the other hand and says, now let me tell you about Onesimus, my son. And he is reconciling them in himself. And Paul is embodying that gospel imperative in a very powerful, personal way. I love that phrase, that sort of incognito God, because, again, one of the things that I wanted to ask was, obviously you are... Um, like Paul and John, deeply soaked in the scriptures. But lots of us aren't. And um, presumably... Take that with a large pinch of salt. Jane knows the Bible quite well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but presumably, um, God is still the atoning God with, if, if he comes incognito without this story. Oh, yeah. Um, so how, you know, without making everybody take um, several degrees in biblical oh. theology... How do we teach this? It's funny. I think a lot of biblical teaching is actually unlearning um, in order to be open to what's actually there because the, the Bible is not really that difficult a book. It's just we have made it so by overlaying it and thinking that it must mean this or it must mean that. Um, and often, and I've been privileged in some of the jobs I've done to meet people with no degrees and no education past age 14, whatever, with deep understanding of scripture. And it's, this is not an intellectual head trip. And for me, I've had to take the journey I've had to take because I had my head full of all sorts of other ideas. And I mean, for instance, that business about, which is there in all the Old Testament literature, about Genesis 1 being the construction of a heaven and earth temple. Um, most people in most modern Western Christian traditions have never even heard that, in my experience. And yet, it is both obvious in a first century context and shatteringly illuminating for how we read the whole Bible. And yet, so many people, particularly, sadly, in America, read Genesis 1 as a puzzle about do the seven days mean seven periods of 24 hours, as though that is the big question you have to ask. And that's simply not what the book was written about. So there's a huge amount of unlearning um, in order that the relatively simple truth of what's there can shine out. And of course, somebody said of John's Gospel, I can't remember who it was, probably Augustine, I think, that John's Gospel is, is uh, like a, a lake that is safe enough for a child to paddle in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Was that Augustine? Um, I'm not sure. We'll find out. Um, it's, a, it's a good line. It's a good line. And the Lots Bible... things are attributed to yes, I know. Luther. You know, it's like, like sayings being attributed to Winston Churchill. Yes, yes, quite... Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, the, the whole Bible is like that. And, one, I mean, one of the really exciting things, you know, teaching doctrine must be wonderful, and teaching church history must be fantastic. But actually, uh, I have the shortest set, set text of any um, <laughs> critic I know, and it's not that difficult to get your head round it. And then to go on probing and go on probing. And I've been studying and teaching this for, I don't know, 45-plus years, and I find these texts as exciting and explosive now as I did when I was in my 20s. And that's, that's a huge privilege, actually. I suppose another question going on from that. I mean, Jane's asked the, the pastoral question and the 
the, the teaching question. I suppose mine is slightly the, the evangelistic question, because I guess, that, I guess one, one thing I, I sometimes struggle with is that the more we locate Jesus in his first century context, uh, and you have to create this whole world to understand what he was about. But then speaking to someone, you know, it's the old taxi test, you know, you're in a taxi mm-hmm. and, and, and you get, you know, a minute to talk to your taxi driver and say, this is what Christian faith is about. How on earth do you do that uh, with this understanding? And, 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 and I, I hate to ask you this question because it's a difficult one. And I think we all get embarrassed by this question. What would you say in one minute or 30 seconds if you had to? But I suppose, again, that's my, that's my question a little bit in, in um, more you kind of root Jesus in his first century context. Do you have to understand all that context to somehow make sense of it? How would you do that evangelistically? General point, um, theologians and biblical scholars are there to be the scaffolding which is constantly working on the building rather than the building itself. Without the scaffolding, the rain will get in, the roof will start leaking, bad things will happen to this building. We need to be doing that scaffolding working um, in order that those of us who are or the people who are on the front line, whether it's in the taxi or in the youth club or whatever it is, can be sure that when they're doing their one-minute thing, it's act, you know, I was saying to Jane before, one of the problems about all this is that a large number of young people become Christians because somebody has walked them through what is called the Romans road where Romans 1 supposedly tells them they're sinners Romans 2 tells them there's nothing they can do about it Romans 3 tells them that God punished Jesus instead and phew that's all right then and then they wonder what the rest of the letter is about and actually that's not how Romans works but now I'd much rather people believed that they were sinners and that God has saved them by grace through the death of Jesus than that they believed it was a good day to go out and do drugs on the street you know much better to start there but don't stop there um, taxi driver story, since you mentioned it. You may have heard this before. This is, this is a good line. I was in a traffic jam on my way to King's Cross. This was a few years ago. Missing the train, feeling frustrated. Taxi driver looks back, sees my dog collar um, and purple shirt. He says, oh, Bishop, are you? I said, yeah, I'm Bishop. He said, so you're having a lot of trouble with those women bishops now, aren't you? And so this was five years, six years ago before we had them. And I said, yeah, we're having quite a difficult time. He said, what I always say is this. If God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, everything else is basically rock and roll, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I, A better theologian than the rest of us. I, I, I texted Mark Bryant, the Bishop of Jarrow, and said, you never guess what I just said. And he texted right back and said, there's your Easter sermon right there. And, uh, it was. But... Um, what I used to do sometimes in Durham, and I wish I'd done it a bit more, was used to get local churches to host an evening. I remember doing one in Darlington, where, and they invited the mayor and the council and people who ran the local hospital and prison, whatever. And the question was, what would Darlington look like if God was in charge? And the mayor and the council were really rather worried about this, but they came and sat in the front row. And we talked about what the kingdom of God looks like. And I've tried it on youth groups. You walk in and you know, who's in charge here? Oh, what do you mean, who's in charge? And what would it look like if God was in charge here? Oh, I don't know, we'd have better coffee or whatever it is. But, but actually, that's the kingdom question. What would it look like? And then you say, well, actually, Jesus told some stories about what it looks like when God's in charge. Because people expect that if God is in charge, he's going to send in the tanks. And, sorted. and then if he doesn't, then 
Why doesn't God do something? And the answer is God doesn't send in the tanks. According to the Sermon on the Mount, he sends in the meek and the brokenhearted and the justice-hungry people. And, and the world changes. Not in the way that people expect. So that would be my one-minute getter in Very good to me. Um, <laughs> I mean, one more question from me before we go on to um, questions from the audience. The, um, I guess one of the, the, the critiques of uh, atonement theology or... Um, uh, you know, the sort of centrality of the cross is, is uh, I guess, the critique that's often been often come from sort of more feminist circles, basically saying that the mm-hmm. cross somehow sacralizes violence. It has mm-hmm. a, uh, a, um, a sort of suffering person right at the heart of Christian faith. It valorizes vi- suffering itself. Um, and it somehow um, kind of authorizes passive suffering on behalf yeah. of victims yeah. 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 Uh, at the hands of power. Do you, does your... Uh, understanding of, of atonement that you've you've outlined tonight answer yeah. that critique? Yeah, I, I don't know that it answers it exactly. It may reframe it um, because at every point in the narrative I was telling, there are there are things which can be distorting and which can go horribly off key. And like I said, there are lots of people who, having heard gospel preaching for many years really think this is about God so hating the world that he killed his son and you know if you get there you must have gone horribly and and of course yes there are people who have told victims women children that that God wants you to suffer this is good for you Um, and sometimes the church has said that to people and that is absolutely shameful Um, it's it's so much more mysterious than that that's a kind of cheapening as well as a distortion of what's actually going on Um, because it isn't that God uses suffering in his redemptive purposes and that Jesus' death was kind of a special example of that it's that and, and this is why incidentally Isaiah 53 being the clearest Old Testament exposition of this stands on its own because it is such a dangerous thing to say that he was wounded for our trespasses and bruised for our iniquities that it's not surprising to me that it's kind of like a mountain peak rising out out of the mists from all the other scriptures. It's a very difficult and dangerous thing to say. And really, to understand Isaiah 53, you need to read it in the context of Isaiah 40 to 55 as a whole. It only makes the sense it makes in that. And if we take it out, then we can turn it into these other things. So again and again, when we even smell the hint of that kind of distortion, we have to say, no, come back to the actual story. And if it's women, look at the women at the foot of the cross. Look at Mary Magdalene on Easter morning. Um, this story is not about them being told to suffer. Yes, Mary, Starbat, Marta Dolorosa. I was in the Barbican on Saturday night, and James McMillan's extraordinary setting of the Starbat Marta, just breathtaking. But so sometimes the women are there, not because they are, um, as it were, the ones who are especially suffering, but because they have the courage to stay there and stand at the foot of the cross. And there's a kind of a, uh, I don't know, I'm lost for words there. Well, you know, the men are away and hiding somewhere, frightened, and the, and the women are still there. And there's a deep truth there, which I'm not sure we have good language for at the moment. was Godpod, a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre. 
If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.